So good evening, everybody. Welcome to another Enterprise Tuesday event. Um, my name is Matthew Grimes. I'm one of the academic directors of the Entrepreneurship Center, and I'd like to welcome you here tonight. Um, tonight's topic is, is focused on creating value while protecting intellectual property um, with guest panelists Sean Grady of AstraZeneca, Heather Richards of Transversal, and John Snyder of Grapeshot, which was recently acquired by Oracle last year. Um, as the panelists up here well know, this topic is, is rife with a lot of tensions. Um, I mean, clearly there's a need to protect one's intellectual property, but also there's a need to, to open up and get external feedback. So how do you navigate that, that tension, do both simultaneously? Um, just a couple, couple items of housekeeping before I turn it over to the panelists. Um, there are two exits. Uh, one at the top, one at the bottom of the stairs in the event of, of a fire hazard or emergency. We will be convening at the, um, at the entrance of the, uh, at the exit of the, um, the business school. Um, also, please do uh, turn off any electronics, uh, any, any mobile devices that uh, might disturb this evening. Um, I, I also want to draw your attention to Ignite. Um, so Ignite is an intensive one-week uh, program that we run here at the Entrepreneurship Center um, for aspiring innovators and corporate innovators as well um, to trial and prepare high-tech and biotech um, ideas and inventions for uh, the commercial environment. And this year, we're actually celebrating our 20th uh, year anniversary. Um, Ignite has an impressive track record of inspiring a number of new, new business ventures. Um, so if you have a novel technology or innovation and you're looking for additional support from mentors, investors, faculty members, et cetera, um, I'd invite you to, um, to send an email to uh, that email address. Um, the, the event will take place from uh, the 30th of June to, uh, to the 5th of July, and there is a 20% discount until the 1st of March if you, if you sign up. Um, so uh, I'd like to introduce uh, the chair of tonight's event, and uh, Sean, Sean Grady, and then Sean, I'll, I'll let you in introduce our other panelists as well. Um, so Sean is the Vice President of Business Development Operations at AstraZeneca. He leads the company's transaction, execution, due diligence, and alliance and integration um, management function, which includes activities like externalization, licensing and partnering, mergers and acquisitions, and divestments. Um, he's an honorary entrepreneurship fellow and a valued supporter of the Entrepreneurship Center. Um, so thank you, Sean, and of course, thank you as well to the panelists for being here tonight. Thank you. So uh, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise uh, Tuesday. And in, in, in the series, the, the topic, creating value while protecting IP. So just to introduce myself uh, a wee bit more. So, so what you heard, I'm the head of global business development in AstraZeneca, so a big pharma guy. <clears throat> There's no getting away from that. And of course, AstraZeneca have relocated our corporate and research and development headquarters to Cambridge. The building's going a bit slower than everybody had hoped and expected, uh, but that's the thing about uh, big building projects, isn't it? If I was over budget and two years over time, I don't think I'd be sitting here still in my job, but there's something about these big construction projects where somehow that's acceptable. Somebody did tell us that it took 100 years to, be, to build the King's College Chapel. So being a year or so um, <laughs> out of time 
with the CBCs, yeah, maybe not so bad. There was a civil war. <laughs> Maybe there will be a civil war <laughs> that we can blame and excuse for our, uh, for, for our project delay. There were many, there were seven kings and queens. I don't know if you're a student of history. Anyway, it took a long time. Four, there you go, four, seven. Um, so what I, what I do in AstraZeneca, as, as you heard, is lead the uh, transaction group. So we split search and evaluation from transactions. So there are clever scientifically, technically fluent people who strategize, identify, and evaluate. And then the group that I lead do diligence, negotiation, and then increasingly, importantly, alliance management and integration management of the assets that we, that we bring in to the company. So we have the best jobs in AstraZeneca. Not necessarily the best paid or the best profile, but just in terms of what we do. You know, it's like living in a case study. We're buying things, we're selling things, we're partnering things. We're winning on some situations, we're losing on other situations. It's a really interesting and fulfilling job, uh, made even, even more interesting by being here in Cambridge as part of the cluster with relationships with uh, the business school and, and some of the uh, entrepreneurs and startup companies that we've gotten to work with. We've got a pool of about um, 70 people who coach and mentor startups in and around Cambridge, well, the UK broadly, but particularly in Cambridge, and they're part of the Ignite, uh, the Ignite program. So that might be another reason to grab your 10% uh, early discount. So uh, privileged and delighted to be here, but particularly we're very, very fortunate to have Heather and John uh, with us this evening, who you know have lived the experience of you know working with a small company and developing that and being extraordinarily successful in, in both cases. And therefore, you know, it's fantastic to have their insights in terms of value creation and intellectual property protection. But from the calls that we had ahead of this, um, the, the panel and the quick discussion we had this evening, I think the focus of the discussion is probably on value creation and how you think about that and how you protect that and how you nurture that more than a cold, dry uh, kind of patent um, <clears throat> presentation, which I'm sure is what you are all expecting. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here in such uh, high numbers. So with that, Heather, can I pass over to you to sure. maybe introduce yourself, but talk a little bit about the company, and yep. then John to do the same. Absolutely. Yeah, um, so I'm Heather Richards, CEO at Transversal. Uh, Transversal is a company that provides knowledge automation, is the way that we describe it. Um, so we're looking at ways of automating the consumption, creation, and sharing of knowledge, uh, of information. And that, that's done in a lot of different ways. The, the most popular use cases for that are either on websites, where you as a customer need access to information, um, in service centers where um, agents, employees need access to information or in HR, B2B scenarios, enterprise. And what we've seen is going back you know, 10, 15 years ago, the company was founded in 1998, so we're by no means what you'd consider a, a startup. Um, the way that people utilize and access information and the reasons they're doing so has changed dramatically. 
And so in terms of creating value and, and discussing IP, for me it's really interesting to actually see how a technology that may have been developed in its inception in 1998, uh, almost at the dawn of the, the internet, um, is now being utilized today in completely different situations. And the way that that technology is actually being applied has, has changed a lot. A lot of it has to do with computing power, definitely how popular AI is now. Uh, our technology is a combination of uh, natural language processing and then also machine learning. And the tools that we have available now and the language you can use to talk to different customers and partners has changed vastly in, in the last 20 years. And people kind of get and understand the different applications of, of knowledge now in a way that they would not have understood 15 years ago. And, and so for me, that's what's really interesting and that's, that's what keeps Transversal quite relevant actually. Um, e even though we're still working with some customers who we originally sold a, maybe a web self-service application to 15 years ago. Um, the company has about 75 people. Uh, we're based here in Cambridge and have been from day one. And the initial IP, I guess you call it, was actually a, a spin-off of Cambridge University. And two of our founders were actually here as part of the university, uh, Sir David Mackay and Dr. David Yap. Um, and, and so it's been, again, really interesting to be a part of that journey, first brought in as an employee, early employee number seven or so, um, actually building uh, up the IP and technology to where we see it now. And then I've been chief exec for about four and a half years um, after running the client services side of things. Does the company still feel like a startup? 10 years and 75 people? Does 75 people um, sound, feel huge? It, you know what, I, I, I'd say yes, but in many ways it's a mindset. It's definitely part of the culture. And, and I guess when you're talking about pr protecting value, mm. that, that, that culture and, and the people are a huge, a huge part of that. I think you have to approach everything as if it is almost day one, whether it's in terms of R&D or the applications of your technology or the way that you're hiring or trying to retain people. Uh, the one thing that's changed dramatically is the competition we have now in terms of hiring people and talent within Cambridge. Uh, we're, we're part of the, the section of Cambridge that people refer to as AI Alley. Um, Ten years ago that didn't exist and, and now we're footsteps away from Apple, Microsoft and Amazon within that, that same little corner on Station Road. Uh, so, so yeah, it does, it does still feel like a, a startup, absolutely. John? Uh, in, in terms of introduction, I graduated here in 1987 at a time when business and money was a very negative word in academic circles. And a lot of my peers would go down to London and work in the merchant banks and all the like. And my professor said, why don't you, uh, why don't you hang around, John, and do what you want to do? So it involved setting up a, a project which collected a lot of media and then meeting this very clever mathematician from St. John's who had his own software deployed in the university. So my op business opportunity was to really take that technology out of museum cataloging, not a really exciting area perhaps, but Muscat was the name of the software. And I was able to take it out and apply it into a very different market context to what it was written for. And that was a successful experience selling it back in 1997. I was then part of a large uh, London and NASDAQ quoted company and created a search engine. Uh, it was a time when AltaVista was dominant. I knew Google when there were seven people there. And uh, perhaps I'll tell you a few stories about that later. But the key point is having that experience of building something beautiful in terms of technology and trying to apply it to this ever-changing world, which was internet version 1.0. 
at the end, I got blocked from spinning it out um, from the public company. Um, I had backing from Intel and 3i. So I came back and worked here. I worked at the Entrepreneurship Center. So working with about 100 startups a year, building a mentoring program, getting people through to their first round of funding. And was about to set up a venture fund because I could see lots of deal flow really early. I was uh, a founder member of something called Cambridge Angels. A um, lot of sort of investment in small companies. And uh, my original co-founder said, look, John, I've spent four years writing Grape Shop. Can you help me apply it to the market again? So it was kind of playing Monopoly twice over when you land on Go and collect all the money. Uh, Grape Shop's actually been 13 years of hard work. Uh, and what was different from Muscat was really growing uh, quite an international capability. So we sold products in 148 countries. I had offices in Shanghai, Hong Kong, Singapore, Chicago, Toronto, and around the world. And Oracle came along um, to buy the company, really, as it said, it had great product, you know, a great team, and actually a great business model. We were growing in the last year I was CEO, about 180% year-on-year revenue. This is about 200 staff, 94% gross margin, and a 20% EBIT. So it was a stellar kind of business. But the key point is it had a great product and a great team. So when we talk about value, perhaps we can talk mm. across the piece there. Yeah, thanks, John. So maybe just to touch, get to the IP part of the discussion uh, briefly. When we were planning for this, and we had a couple of calls, John, you know, when we were talking about basic patents as opposed to confidentiality and trade secrets and software, you know, the difference between singular patents, families of patents, and the importance of freedom to operate. So knowing what other people have got as much as knowing what you might have yourself. Do you, do you want to say a little bit about that, maybe? Okay, so I mean, with Grape Shots, I got an early stage uh, investor. He was actually part of the MBA program here at Cambridge, and then evolved into you know doing some investing as a junior person and now as a partner in a fund so i would always uh, class him as kind of the b team rather than the a a class venture capitalists that are from silicon valley and the like that's back then by the way um and he would say that if he was in the room he's a friend isn't i would it? say yeah. i would say that as a as a friend uh, he's a you know good chap but the key point was oh where's your patent and i'm like oh dear you know the investor thinks I need a patent, and I'm writing software. And my co-founder was very anti-patents. He, he was very much, not quite open source, but, you know, well, he had actually open source. He open sourced the Porter Stemmer, which is one of these amazing algorithms that help <coughs> linguistic processing. You probably use the Porter Stemmer in your code base. Um, secret. <laughs> <laughs> the key point is that, you know, the assumption was you need a patent. So I thought long and hard about this, and he encouraged me to use a patent advisor. So we had two days uh, inside the company, and the patent advisor said, you've got 11 opportunities to patent here. And Martin was very, this is my co-founder, was very good on logbooks. So he could log back every day of his work over sort of 30 years. So I felt that when we researched not only our own work, but the other companies out there with existing patents, the big question is, did we have freedom to operate? Had someone patented something that Martin had invented, it's just we hadn't done the patent filing first. And I felt with our history of logbooks that we could actually prove that we had an earlier capability than the publishing date of, of the initial file. But secondly, my experience at Cambridge Angels, uh, especially in biotech, was everyone thinks patent family. So it's not one patent. You've actually got to take four, five, six, eight, 
And it's almost like playing a game of risk. You've got to put all your pieces on the board and get protection 360 from where you want to go. And I think the problem with patents, and perhaps Heather will allude to this too, is you have to publish your method. So you can have a knife, and that knife can be used to cut bread. It's a patent if you decide that that knife can be used to spread butter. So the application of an existing set of technologies to a new purpose is actually patentable. And you have to demonstrate in a patent filing your methods and how you actually turn these building blocks to this new method of some potential value. And we felt that we didn't want to tell the world how we were doing our algorithms. Why would you do that? So I purposely went off and did one patent that was left of field just to simply tick the investor box. Uh, we actually you know, pushed that patent filing in several territories, so not just UK or US, but slightly broader to Europe, uh, just to show we are serious. But in truth, we weren't that serious. We just wanted to get the, the little you know, tick box, have patent, um, but really quite clear through the process of due diligence exactly where we stood with our core technology and where potential competitor threat might come from. Mm. And Heather, you were saying you went transversely, you went through a similar we, we, we did. systematic assessment. So, so similar to what, to what you're saying, the, the very early on, that there was sort of, I guess, what we'd call our core method, uh, a part of which ended up being patented for the exact same reasons that John was just describing. Why, why do you want to broadcast to the world all, all, all the secrets, all, all the things that makes you special? Um, periodically, we review things that are coming out of R&D, and I'd say in the 20 years of the company, we've just recently filed a, a, another patent, so patent pending, which, which I can't discuss be, because of that. But that's after looking through different things that we feel comfortable putting out into the public. And, and so in many cases, it's actually a very small subsection um, of what we're actually using. It's not the full idea. It's not the full process. It, it's not the... the the, the full code end to end by any stretch of the imagination. But it's enough to, to get the idea out there. Um, it's enough to communicate to potential you know, investors that, that this is what we're focusing on, this is why. And for us, it also, in terms of the Peyton family, um, helps us tell the, the narrative of, of what we're doing. Uh, our core technology we refer to as prescience, where our search engine is trying to anticipate what it is you want to know before you ask the question. And if you can indicate what you're doing uh, along those lines through a, a couple of different painted approaches, not necessarily the algorithms or the code base itself, that that's enough to give an illustrative version um, on paper to, to the narrative that we're trying to tell in terms of the company history and also approach to product. That the ownership. Um, yet, the, where uh, I guess a broad base in, in terms of the, the ownership, there isn't one owner who has the majority shareholding, um, I guess is what I feel comfortable saying. Um, but we're still very much tied to the founders as, as well. Um, all of the IP rests with the company, it's not individuals, and that's one of the things that we were talking about. Um, earlier is as you bring on employees, especially in the early days. I've talked to a couple of founders who didn't realize until three, four years into their journey that because of the way that the employee contracts were written, the IP, the code that was being written, was actually the property of 
the coders as opposed to the employees themselves. And, and so it's really important that very early on you start asking yourself questions as to where does the IP sit, who owns it, um, what do our employee contracts look like? And, and I, I know a lot of startups are not asking those questions. So go into that one. in a bit more detail than Heather. So you decide I'm not going to patent for mm -hmm. all the reasons that you both touched on. So you, you're going to keep, what, what do you do then to protect and to have barriers to entry mm. and to secure the knowledge base that you're creating? What, what, what would you, how would you advise people? Well, I, I think for, first looking at employee contracts, make sure that there are things like NDAs in place. So if you are going to rely on essentially trade secrets as opposed to you know, looking at filing a, a patent, that, that that's there. Um, make sure that the code actually belongs to the company, not individuals. Um, and then also, as you then start selling product, uh, look at the contracts you have with the, the individuals that you're actually selling software to. Um, quite early on, we had partners saying, oh, we want exclusivity to that, or oh, we'll, we'll take that and just OEM your, your software over here. Um, you have to ask yourself the question, is that going to prohibit us from then being able to sell into a bigger opportunity down the road? Is that something that we actually want to do? Um, do we want to sign this contract away when they're actually demanding that a copy of the code goes in escrow? I mean, all different scenarios are going to come about. And it's worth asking yourself, is it worth this one deal to bet the farm on at this early stage? And who typically owns enhancements and extensions if you've licensed exclusive or otherwise? Mm -hmm. Does that come back to you or is that with the client licensee? We, 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 we've kept all of the IP and licenses in-house. So what we're doing is licensing the software for use, but we're we've not OEMing it so that somebody else owns it. Mm -hmm. um, we also have APIs that allow people to utilize some of our core IP, but, but again, it, it sits within transversal. It, it's not something that's then being given to the end user. Mm -hmm. I, I would go further than um, getting proper contracts from day one. Clearly, you want to sign the IP of your employees, even if you're not paying them money. You might just be pairing them with, with share options or basically less money than normal. Um, you might think they're gifting some of their time, but you need to lock down who owns the IP in all cases. Um, I'm reminded of a time when someone bought Muscat and he said, I can't believe it. You've, um, you've audited your accounts from day one and you have all this paperwork here. Why did you go overboard? My one response was, because I knew one day you'd be standing here. In other words, they need to see a complete audit trail and where the IP sits. Now, with something like um, Oracle, they checked every line of code. And whenever they see certain patterns that correspond with any known open source, they literally target it and verify, you know, where did this come from? And so if you've got any open source in your software product, you know, we were required within 45 days or some period just to reverse out certain code, just to make sure there's no ambiguity about who owns it. So if the person who finally acquires your intellectual property or your company is so focused on ownership, then you better make sure you've got that absolutely wrapped up uh, and contained. And that is with partnership <coughs> contracts. So when, when you were starting, where did you get this guidance from? Did you, did you go to, you know? You, ne you network in Cambridge and you hear people talking about their experiences. <laughs> is that what it is? I mean, it is. And, and mistakes. I mean, if I go back to the patent things, after we sold Muscat, we were part of a public company and there was pressure on us to file patents. So I think I've got my name on three or four patents and Martin likewise. And so then, you know, we finish there and then Martin writes new code in a new language. So not BCPL, which is very old, but C. 
And essentially, we build a company, and it's a great company. So when it comes round to final due diligence, everyone's going, hang on, you filed some patents, and they're owned by that company, and you're over here working here. So you're now infringing your own patents that are owned by someone else. And so actually, the patent activity really created some headaches in due diligence, because there was a question, you know, if you know how to write search algorithms, um, and you write them in different languages, some people might assume you're writing the same algorithm twice. Mm -hmm. Very dangerous. Mm. And would you agree there's a sense of you need to be patenting because it's sort of a proof point of your innovation and your growth as a company? Do, do, do you feel that? I think it's mandatory in life sciences where you've got, you've got a business model not based on revenue and you know, lots of customers. You're actually a business model based on hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And the hypothesis is very intellectual. So you need a very strong patent attack in terms of freedom to operate and building the family. Yeah. But in some business models, particularly I assume Heather and mine and many others in software, your real winning formula isn't the patent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's how you conduct your business and how you grow your business. And it's the quality of your team and everything you put into play, yeah. not just the IP. Absolutely, and it, but you're right, it, it is in therapeutics. The number of, we walk away from few deals once we decide to go for them, but the, the, the absence of strong IP yeah. is typically the reason we, we do walk away. Yeah. Well, and I, th I think it's worth saying as well, with, with software, it's a lot more difficult to, to patent. Um, the, we're, we're going through a process now where you first apply for a, a patent in the UK because you're in the UK, knowing full well that because of the way that, that software patents are viewed in the UK versus the US, for example, you may get turned down, um, but then you use that feedback and learning to kind of tweak things, rewrite, and then resubmit in the States where, where you're more likely to be able to actually patent software. Um, so so I, I would agree there, there is a lot of differences in looking at software development mm -hmm. for, versus life sciences and your people are much more likely to value your company on your, your staff, the, the quality of your customers, um, uh, obviously the, the, the growth, the, the applicability of the technology you have to different areas and not necessarily how many patent, patents you have. You have. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Sure, and you're probably very aware patents are often written kind of like onion rings, you've got a very big, bold statement, and then you go down into these almost lower levels into the minutiae, and you're always judging where the examiners will actually mm -hmm. you know, say yes to that particular patent filing. Um, and I think you, know, you might share trade secrets by revealing method, but you can also, I think, go a long way by getting filing. Get something filed. You might not actually get it approved, but it just registers that you're on the radar yeah, absolutely. And you're there because of this uh, freedom yep. to operate later. No, I agree. But, but filing, applying for a patent is expensive. Well, it's costly. Um, maintaining patents is costly. And then what do you do? Do you go, do you go globally with, in anticipation from somebody like me will knock on the door? Or as people typically do, they do Europe and they do the US just to kind of get going. And then if, if the, you know, the product development is strong and they're looking at a global uh, licensing and there isn't any intellectual property in Japan or, or Latin America or what have you, then you're, you know, you're, in, a, you're in a bit of... Yeah, I, I remember just being bombarded by, you know, this is paperwork, it needs filing, do this. And I'm like, at the end, I just drowned in this. You know, I didn't want the distraction. So the main reason I didn't file patents yeah, you going forward was I can't afford the time distraction. Yeah, You've got to really, really want to value it and, and believe in it to, to take it forward. So tell us a story or two about when Google was seven people. 
Um, yeah, well, this is interesting because uh, when I sold Muscat in 1997, um, I had this idea of a big search engine of the internet. And there was a gathering in Boston every year, mostly academics, but also some of the big commercial teams. Um, there was a company, essentially, that was innovating what then became Google's model very much later. But at the time, it was about seven people. Um, I saw Marissa Meyer recently. She was employee number 12. And I remember as a little marketing executive saying, Oh, just hello, you know, what are you doing? You know, sharing knowledge. Uh, Marissa ended up running Yahoo. Um, and she said, oh, I remember Muscat. And uh, Craig Stevenson, who um, was employee number one, was someone who I was at these, you know, search meetings in Boston and elsewhere. And uh, I presented with a Nokia communicator, which was a very new phone. It was quite an interesting phone because you could get the internet quite easily. And I demonstrated standing up and speaking a search and immediately on the overhead back came the results. And that was pretty game changing at that point. No one had ever seen that. And talking to Craig afterwards, he said, oh, John, you know, we're thinking about things like that. And I remember about three or four years later when Google was really big, uh, they filed patents on speech driven search. And I'm like, hang on, you know, he, A, I demonstrated it, B, the CTO of Google said, John, yeah, we like that, you know, that's a good idea. Um, and then they filed, you know, several years later. And I presented in a public space and I had the record of what I'd done. So the real question was, I'm a little company in Cambridge um, in my new startup, Grapeshot, and why would I, you know, try and fight what was then become quite a large company? And... So in a way, I wasn't going to sort of take some of those ideas forward because Google had already you know, laid down that patent opportunity. Um, I think it's interesting, though, a, a separate question is how do you build a large company like Google? Um, we had the same ideas with 35 people when they were seven. I, I had a larger index of the internet than Google. Um, I basically had financial support coming my way. It was blocked by the CEO of the parent. But the real question was you know, the whole financing environment there was very different, um, and they were able to mobilize and really grow fast. And I think, you know, Grapeshot's story, whilst it's a, an acquisition by a large American corporation, it's really a story of small dribbles of capital that come in. So we, we, we tread cautiously testing with our customers, and it's not some big bold thing where here's a ton of money, you don't need a business model, because Google didn't have a business model back then. Um, and they just grow companies in very different ways mm -hmm. is what we do here. So could you see back then what they were going to become or did, uh, they, did they get like No, I mean, I remember uh, Salah Kamanga, he was, a, he was employee number seven, actually, and I remember speaking on a platform with him and they just seemed very technical, very excited by their technology and not a, not a glimmer of commercial spirit in them uh, <laughs> when they're that small. Uh -huh. What are you, Heather? When you were, were you employee number seven, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. yeah just and, about. and who was hanging around then? Who surprised you? Who disappointed you? Can you any reflections back? Oh goodness. Um, we, we I, I'm proud to say we have a lot of the, still the core team, which, which for me it really um, tests to the, the strength of community and culture that we have actually within the organization. A few of our developers have been around since day one, and obviously we've onboarded different people. Um, since then, um, 
But it, it's, it's, to me, it's always interesting to, to see who does kind of step up, as it were. Um, you know, our, our head of development is, she, she's fabulous. And, and she's, she's one of the very first people who's, who's first started uh, coding. And it was really obvious quite early on that she also had a, a head for sort of product development and, and management and, and running teams that way. Um, and so that, that's been a re really interesting to see. Um, I, I was laughing, you were telling your Google story, because we, we had something very similar when we were just acquiring our very first customers. And our, our first customer was Sony PlayStation, which for us was a cute, you know, first paying customer and recognizable name. But we'd also been doing a POC with a large utilities company who decided they told us for sort of monetary reasons they weren't going to go forward. And about four, six weeks after that, uh, after we removed our solution from their website, um, an identical replica appeared exactly where we had been. It wasn't us. Um, and you know, we were all up in arms, very similar to you, like, how, did, how can they do that? Uh, but, but when you're a company of you know, eight, nine people, um, you know, barely ma making a profit at that point. You're, you're not going to go head to head in a legal battle. So it's one of those things you just kind of just, you know, suck it up and, and learn from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And who were the companies who were around you at the time who it, progressed or? Yeah, looking back, um, there's a Right Now Technologies, which was also acquired by Oracle. Um, and, and they started about the same time we did. And it's interesting to see the different trajectories. Obviously, we had our eye on Google because they, they were doing very similar things. Um, over the years, eGain Technologies as well, which is another, I guess, player in what you'd call the self-service market. Um, and, and all these companies are still contemporaries of ours. And what we've seen is a lot of consolidation over the years. And, and I think from Transversal's point of view, what we opted to do was instead of growing broad, to focus narrow. And, and I think looking at where we are now was absolutely the right thing to do just because the knowledge is no longer seen as a discipline, it's become a market. And we're recognized as world leaders in that now. Um, we're, we're not a sweet vendor um, that, that's sort of trying to sell everyone, you know, all these things plus the kitchen sink. It's a punishment. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, um, you've, well, you've made me reflect on the Google uh, early story. When GrapeShot came about, I was pretty similar. I had a great technology, but you know, which market do I apply it to? And at that time, it wasn't just Google. There were about 100 open source search engines. So some of Prem Traversal's competitors will be <coughs> bolting together sort of ready-made sort of Lucene-type mm -hmm. search systems. So I decided, well, I've got to go somewhere where people really can't go. And um, there was a guy uh, that I was at college with, a year older than me. He built a company called Autonomy. He was kind of copying some of the probabilistic ideas when I'd sold my business. He was riding a slightly different time frame. Um, and I, I was just thinking, you know, how do I apply my technology? I could knock the socks off what autonomy were doing because I've got really good products and scale. And actually, it was Google. It was Google telling me that you could not put in an ad tag a real-time variable to switch the ad in, in kind of like digital advertising. And it was the guys at DoubleClick who said, no, 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 you can't do that. And that was actually the stake in the ground that said, you know what, I'm going to go and do some real-time search in the, speed of, in the speed of a millisecond to impact real-time ad placement. So I took the fact that Google was big and it was bloated and its double-click code was four or five years old, and I actually went and attacked exactly at the core of their system. So you tended to find, you probably heard in the news, you know, two, three years ago, YouTube, you know, it's got 
ads on is you know terrorist content, um, and actually we we were the solution to impact mm -hmm. you know either brand safety yeah. on the page in real time, uh, or essentially precision targeting. So the irony is we got acquired by Oracle to basically facilitate yeah. that battle, and it's a space that Google knows well. So we should open it up in a minute, but before we do, let, should we talk about talent? And so you're both describing all the wonderful things that you've done. So what was what was it like getting access to the clever people who would help you fulfil your vision? And is Cambridge the right place to be? Um, is Cambridge big enough to uh, get the resource and the intellectual capital to feed the innovation? Cambridge is an awesome place to be. And a good friend coined the phrase, it's a low, a low risk place to do high risk things. And I think you're in a community where you can step forward and fail and fail well and fast and iterate, and I think there's a lot of intelligent, curious minds, and I think back to Heather's point of culture, the type of culture, you can recruit people who, they don't want a pay, payday salary, they want a challenge and a problem, and they want a mission. And if you can basically be on fire and group together talented people, they come to work with full energy and spirit mm. to really change the world, I think, is one of the strap lines for Cambridge, and yeah, you end up producing product that goes right around the world and changes the way people do things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I would concur. I mean, Cambridge is a great place to be. Um, it's one of the reasons that we've stayed here as opposed to moving headquarters elsewhere. Um, and I, I'd always say re recruit for potential uh, as well. There are so many bright people who, when you put a problem in front of them, are going to be able to do amazing things, even if they've never tried to tackle that particular problem before. Mm -hmm. um, and so the ability to recruit from not just the university, but, but j just the environment, um, I, I think is, is amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really good place to be. Mm -hmm. And the quality of staff that I've seen and that we've been able to recruit um, are second to none, really. I mean, world class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So hopefully that's an encouraging message for everybody. Uh, so why don't we open it up for uh, comments and questions and what have you. Before we do, how many people are more on the kind of, you know, the tech side, the software side, as opposed to life sciences and therapeutics? Just with a quick show of hands, the more tech, software, and drugs and devices and diagnostics? Tiny, then, by com relative comparison. <coughs> oh, that's interesting. So um, I should have said at the beginning, this is being streamed by BBC Worldwide, apparently. We're, uh, <laughs> we're going live in uh, uh, Nigeria as we speak, which means that if people do have a, a, a comment or a question, they should wait for the, for the microphone uh, to, to arrive, please, if you, can be, if you can be patient. So who's going to kick us off? The gentleman at the front. So you, we've got the mic. We've got to be quick with the mic, uh, pass the parcel, I think. All right, thank you. Um, so I know many people claim that it is not possible to get a software patent legally. So what's your take and where do you see this is going, really? I'd, I'd say you, you, you can get a, a software patent. Um, it's just easier in some places than others. And I, I, I mentioned that the UK and that it is actually very difficult because it's a whole idea here, looking at sort of patent history, that it's got to be a thing, almost a machine. It can't be a, an idea. Whereas in the States, they look at it slightly differently, where it can actually be an idea as opposed to an actual physical object. Things are changing slowly. Um, uh, but I'd, I'd say, yes, you absolutely can patent software. It 
just as easier in some places versus others. I don't know if... Yeah, when you do your freedom to operate analysis and see what other patents people have filed, you'll see a lot of US ones, mm -hmm. and they focus around the idea more than the solution. Um, I totally agree with that. And those different jurisdictions, you've got to really understand, A, the different costs that apply, the different rates at which you have to you know, keep on top of your filing, and the style of examination. And I, I would say, if, if you know going into it that it may not be granted a, a UK patent, don't put that, you know, don't let that put you off from then applying in, in the US because it is fairly um, understood that it's much more difficult to patent software in this country. And how, how do you do that? Is there any way of doing that without going to a, you know, an advisory firm and paying fees? Can you do that freedom to FTO search I, I, I think independently? In, and I think it's important in a place like Cambridge. It's a cluster and it's a cluster for a reason. There's lots of people who will give you free advice. Don't think, you know, every time you talk patent, you've got to sort of exchange money. Um, you should use the network to find, you know, friendly voices and people with a listening ear so you can get steered. And also, I always encourage anyone in the entrepreneurship game to triangulate. So go out and talk to 20 people and get 20 different views and triangulate the opinion from that. Don't just go to one person and, and take that for granted. Very good advice. Uh, let's go out to the far left. Uh, I'm just wondering, towards uh, life sciences, we mentioned that patents are quite essential, but are any of the other uh, IP areas like data, algorithms, are they starting to register yet yeah. at uh, the big pharma level? Yeah, great question. So I think, um, you know, our business is basic to that extent that it is about the strength of the IP because you've got entire industries looking at our patent protection and they're just sitting there putting millions and millions and millions of dollars into lawsuits to you know trip us up and get the under and, and, and take it away so it's huge and it's important I think as a if I can speak um, for the entire pharmaceutical sector there's an awakening now and um, you know I think uh, Roche and Novartis are ahead of the game in terms of thinking about digital and big data and where they go with that. They've done Flatiron, the Roche acquisition quite uh, quite recently. Uh, more parochially, AstraZeneca's had a huge amount to do just to rebuild our pipeline and portfolio. So, you know, we were on the burning platform before we came to Cambridge, so everyone's really had their heads down just delivering the data to, you know, get launch products again and rebuild the, uh, the pipeline, particularly in oncology. So it's only in the last kind of six months or so we put our heads up and uh, had some oxygen to think about what, what, what's happening going forward, including big data and AI and the like. And one of the real challenges is back to people and talent. We're not sure we've got the people in the company who know what's good or what good looks like. And I know this is being streamed around the world, but I think that's an honest and realistic assessment. Um, you know, there's an abundance of talent, but I'm, sh I'm not sure right now people want to join a big pharma company. That doesn't give them the, you know, the, the, the thrill and the, uh, and the excitement. So we, we have to think about that very carefully. And the answer is probably partnerships as opposed to acquisition and uh, building ourselves. So I think, I think there are other people who are ahead of us. On the other hand, it is such a fast-moving area that we're kind of convincing ourselves it probably doesn't matter that we're coming in two or three years later because you know what happened two or three years ago is a bit um, out of uh, date already. Yeah. 
So I, I just want to comment. I'm seeing, uh, as an angel investor, I'm looking at a lot of deal flow that is down in Babraham, and it's it's biotech or what I'd normally call biotech has a huge big data play. You know, if you can pull patient data and get the intelligence off that data and know how to segment it with the right taxonomies, the right analysis, um, that is part of the the value. But what I realise is a lot of these people who have done all their training in 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 sort of pharma and biotech. They don't actually know how to run, build a software team. So it's, it's kind of strange. We've got tech skills and we've got biotech skills. And it's almost a convergence that's happening right at the heart of you know, new biotechs. Because yeah. the, you know, we're in a digital world. So every patient and every drug now has digital touch points. How, you know, what's your dosing? And you know, what's happening? And all the information. So I think this is a really ripe opportunity for Cambridge, in particular, because we've got such strengths in these disciplines. But you know, Babraham's down there, and um, AI Alley's up here, and somehow, you know, and some of the big farmers are going to want more yeah. of that DNA Absolutely. inside your own teams. So maybe I'm going to make the same point. But uh, pharma companies are data companies. If you think about it, that's what we've got. We just, we, you know, we do experiments, we create data, we persuade regulators that the data's good. The first hurdle is we don't um, collect that data or store that data or curate that data in a way that you can apply machine learning or algorithms. So there's a huge amount of just um, you know, housework uh, that's going to be required just to get our house in order, in order then to be able to engage with all the clever things that um, you know, people are increasingly doing. Can I, can I, Sean, another point we discussed before and we haven't brought it to the front. I mean, it's actually the data you're collecting and with GDPR and everything else around us, collecting that data, organising it and marshalling it, A, to give you insights about how things are going with your products and services, which is precisely what Transversal sells as a sort of, I assume, a support desk. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a tool to be used. But, you know, that is actually more important IP than your patents. You know, how you collect data, process it, and change the way you're steering your ship or flying your aeroplane is vital value. Yeah. And doing deals around digital companies is very different to buying a factory that's going to make white pills. Mm -hmm. And I think we're just getting our head around that, frankly. And, and I guess your question around the, uh, the patenting algorithms, um, it, it, from what I've seen, it, the most valuable um, thing to, to patent, if that's the way that you're so inclined, is it's the application of, of the, those algorithms, not, not the algorithm itself. Yeah. It's what I ideas, what problem it is that you're actually able to solve utilizing the, the, the algorithm. Should we move on? Gentleman here. We'll move to the back. We all heard about the advantages of patenting. Do you think patents actually hinder the progression of science uh, and investigation? Does, does patenting hinder the progression so, so, of science? So, for example, a, a company might uh, patent something. They have no interest in taking any further, uh, but they might patent it to stop others taking it further and uh, commercially gaining from it. Yeah. So can I go to that one, even though I'm not a, a panellist? Like, no. <laughs> you know, the, the, the big pharma, pharma, biotech, you know, works on the basis of intellectual property. There's a deal with governments. You tell people your cleverness, your innovation, you write it down, and you get your 20 years of protection or whatever is remaining of that 20 years with supplementary protection certificates. And the deal is, at the end of your period of exclusivity, anybody and everybody can make it. But you get that 14, 15, 16 years to make your money back. 
and that's core and key and central. And the big pharma, you know, what are we going to do? We're going to do 24, 25 billion of revenue next. Uh, we're going to report that in a few days' time. That's confidential, probably. <laughs> Share price sensitive, but also inaccurate, by the way. So it, that's, I mean, that's just core and central. It gets more complicated then with um, you know, open in innovation, and we want to share, and we want to learn from each other, and, and, and what have you. And actually, a very interesting and common um, uh, interface between academia and uh, pharma, when people want to publish. And of course, you don't want people to run to publish because it becomes public, and then it kind of impacts your, uh, your, your patenting strategy. But there's a way through all of that. And, and Big Pharma wants to publish as well, because we want to demonstrate that we're at the you know, the cutting edge of science as well. So I think it is a, it is a, it's not quite an urban myth, but it's, it's key and it's central. And it, you know, I don't think it suffocates um, uh, innovation and, and science in any shape or form. In fact, it's central because it creates the, the revenues that then we all reinvest in, in, in subsequent projects and programs. I think there's a broader agenda. So I think to commercialize with big bucks, you need that window of protection to lay down a huge investment. But in the modern era, um, you could be at the university here and they might say, well, well, we'll wrap up the patents into this company vehicle. But what happens if that company doesn't take it forward over two or three years? Can it withdraw it and then reapply it? But the converse is if you put all the IP into one company and they're just lousy at executing, then you end up basically putting something down a certain pathway that is not to the best of either monetizing optimally or essentially going across the world faster. So clearly in the world of software, we've had open source. Now, as a founder can decide, am I going to go trade secret commercial? But another valid opportunity is open source. And if we look at DNA sequencing, and I think it was Celera was the name of the company in the US that was kind of boxing it up with patents and this. And in the UK, there was a much more you know, sort of open strategy to unlock um, that sort of double helix type of uh, DNA to the benefit of broader science. So I think as an inventor, you should really think hard about open source because take someone like Red Hat, who was an open source Linux system. They made their money, and a lot of money, by being the experts in that open source field, almost as a service company, rather than trading off the IP itself. So it's the quality of their knowledge and service and client support is their monetization. So I think you should be very open in thinking about your own strategy of moving technology. Because if you want to change the world, you either create a very good execution company, or there's other ways to get it out there, to get the whole world using it. Should we go to the back a bit? In the very back, can you get the mic up there quickly to the gentleman? And then we'll come over here, sorry. Uh, hi, this is Praful, and uh, my question is on um, how angels view as the IP to a startup before funding, specifically when we have an option of, often we have option of keeping something trade secret versus patenting it. Um, that thus trade secret is still as an attractive proposition um, compared to a patent uh, to an angel. So I, you know, I think it depends on the angel, to, to be honest, and, and also what you're going to, to, to do with the information. 
um, or what you're patenting versus keeping a trade secret. So I, I, I would want to know more about the, the business model, uh, what it is that you're actually selling. Is there a market for it, um, how it's going to be valued? It's not whether or not it's a trade secret versus a, a patent. Um, that there are a whole lot of other questions that would be asked, I think, before determining whether one or the other um, is more valuable in terms of an investment. Well, as an angel, I see lots of things. I get excited when I see a patent because I think, oh, you know, they've actually got something over the line. Mm -hmm. But then it's a negative because I know they haven't got the resources to make the patent family. And I think it's only worth going 100% well at patents or, or almost not at all. So trade secrets, fine. But, you know, what I'm reviewing is, is there a genuine deep technology with a defensible position? And you don't need a patent or trade secret for that, but you do need to do the due diligence to know how can someone mimic or copy it? And to what extent have you got a core defensibility? So with GrapeShot, you know, lots of search technology, but very few people could engineer, you know, two million queries per second at one millisecond speed, you know, software as a service. So the point is you had to know that you had a core strength. So I just felt we had natural differentiated capability. I look for that in every investment I try and make. Um, the other one is just great execution team. If you've got a great team that know how to build a business, um, that's actually more valuable than the technology. I think in Cambridge we sit here, you know, loving the tech, but it's really how do you go to market and how do you grow a team? And otherwise, you're, you've got that. Even if you had the patent, you're not getting it optimized to reach that. that world of market opportunity. We'll go to the gentleman here. He's been very patient. Yeah. Hello. Uh, this is probably more of a comment. Um, but the thing with patent applications is everything you write is a public record. So when you start writing your argument to your patent office and you're, you're basically telling your competition how to break your patent. And I was quite amazed some years ago, we, we had a problem with a patent, and I got the longest letter from the patent lawyer, and it was every letter that this company had written to the patent office and every single reply. And so it told us exactly how to break the patent. So yeah. just to comment really that. Uh, yeah, you think have to explain how you make it. And so and why put it into yeah, the public? Well, we actually broke the patent. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really detailed, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, it's, you've just got to know where to look. And most people don't know where to go and find that, that public record. And I, I didn't know until, until the patent said, lawyer said, here it is. And now whenever I'm doing a patent search for our technology, which is electronics, uh, I'll, I'll actually go and look at the, the patent wrapper. And I can see all their filings exactly when they filed it, whether it's been terminated, so it's not really protected. And, and even if it's protected uh, or p granted, it's still not really protected. As you said, you had your record. So you just said, look, <laughs> I've actually got this record. So I've got a slightly dim view of patents, I'm afraid. I, I'm not in the patent camp. I, I prefer to protect our technology with in technology to stop people getting the secrets out of it. Yeah, I think it's freedom to operate is why you engage with patent lawyers primarily. Yeah. Anyway, just a comment. Mm. I mean, just on the farmer side, <laughs> the farmer side, and it plays to the question at the back. If people say, look, we, it's trade secret, the first question we say, well, how long are you going to keep that secret? You know, as, as you progress it, people are going to figure it out. We all, uh, you know, deconstruct each other's um, products all the time to try and figure out, you know, what's really, really going on. 
And so the, I think the patent strategy is good if there are strong patents. But if the patents aren't strong, mm. then you, know, you are kind of wasting your time. And then in our big world of big numbers and all the rest of it, quite often we find ourselves asking the question, how big is the product going to be that the generics will pay, pay any attention to it? And, and we kind of have, I mean, there isn't a particular number, but it needs to be two, three, four hundred million dollar a year, uh, you know, peak year sales before the generics, the Tebas and Sandoz and all these people will pay attention to it because there are so many other uh, bigger products that they can attack, which is, which is perhaps not something people would uh, particularly think about. We're going ahead, sir. A question for John, really, about uh, Google. Uh, why do you think they became what they are now, uh, given that they were behind on the technology, um, they couldn't patent it? Uh, is that a case of investment? Is it a case of branding? Is it a case of just being lucky? Well, how did they get there? I, I think you see a lot of companies that have that sort of early technology enthusiasm and DNA. And I think where Google was strong, they basically copied someone else's model in terms of putting the ads at the top. There's a guy called Bill Goss who created Overture, I think, was more of the innovator. So they weren't innovating in terms of commercial models. Uh, they were very good on the back end. So they, instead of getting large machines, we, we actually bought the assets out of Boo.com, which was a very famous dot-com crash. So there's pictures in The Guardian of us loading up lorries with the Sun Solaris servers, these big Hulk servers. Google went the other way. They went for lots of very small machines. You know, if, if a rack they burnt out, fine. You know, they could carry on. So they went for a a very distributed server architecture early on. And I would argue that one of their strengths was very low uh, OPEX, operating costs, to run the volume of servers they had. In fact, at GrapeShot, we also found the same opportunity. We, we probably ran about 220 servers, and basically there were about two people managing it. Um, and our gross margin was very high because our cost of running all these servers and delivering all the data was very small. So again, our innovation, relative to many other companies, was probably 10 times better back-end performance, to the extent, I think, after our acquisition, we had a lot of Americans coming over and saying, how did you do this? You know, how do you run software like this? Um, so Google was very good on technology, but the real story is um, Eric Schmidt and other people coming in, very business savvy, and building a business team. And I think, you know, when Google's growing very fast, you would marvel at the quality of talent they had hired, and they were intrinsically commercial. And then they went, you know, acquiring some of the building blocks like DoubleClick and others for the advertising sector. So it's less about the technology; it's all about the execution team, and they executed extremely well. That's their success. Gentleman in the pink shirt. Thank you. With um, the long lead times involved with life science, is patent more important as a form of protection rather than the shorter leads to commercial or to monetization in, say, the software electronics industry? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so therefore, if you were life science, you'd be more patent yes, focused, absolutely. whereas... Mm. Definitely. You need, you, need, you need a family of patents to have any chance exactly. of going yeah. somewhere in the, in the pharma biotech. I mean, in, in software, it's typical to essentially say the, the life cycle of some software is going to be about five, five, five years. You know, it, when you're actually 
going through the audited accounts and looking at the, the over the period of time that you may be amortizing any sort of software or the capitalized development. And, and even that can be questioned as to five years, that's a long time. Um, things turn over so quickly, as you're saying, whereas in life sciences, the lead time just even to developing something is going to be at least that. Exactly. I don't yeah. know any business plan that lasts more than about 18 months. But, but it's an interesting point because, you know, if the software is lasting five years, you're innovating so fast as well. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like you create new products, uh, you know, every year. Whereas yes. I suppose in life sciences, it, you know, often it has been, uh, you know, as a, almost a, a narrow set of hypotheses and let's take a long time through animal models and clinical trials to prove that. It's a completely different business. Mm -hmm. And the art of software and other types of businesses the art of the pivot, the art of being nimble and responding to customer need. And so it's the pace at which you change that matters rather than the original IP. Mm -hmm. well, well, your business models are constantly evolving, whereas pharma business model is fairly static. I mean, there are changes, but essentially it's a sort of a, a fairly static model, whereas yours will change within several times within less the static but if we now bolt on big data and ai and software systems that are starting to be woven in to most of the you know the business investment opportunities i see um it's going to be really interesting how they have those two cultures kind of fused together in an organization i i, I find i'm seeing teams that are very strong on their biotech but demonstrably weak on the software side so i, I completely agree it's evolving but you know there hasn't really been radical change so for 20 years, people have been saying we're going to stop selling pharmaceuticals through reps, you know, getting into a version of a Ford Fiesta in whichever country you're in. That's still how it works. Personal contact with GPs, getting through the receptionist in a GP surgery is a big challenge for pharma globally. Uh, AstraZeneca's got 12,000 people in Ch AstraZeneca, China. 8,000 of them are reps. That's the, way, that's the way you sell drugs. And we've been saying for years that's, it's going to change. It's going to be digital. It's going to be you know, kind of service uh, provision, and it isn't. The pace of change is slow, albeit it, it is evolutionary. And, and you, need the, you need, to your question, you need the big, blocking, very, very strong IP, although they're not all sacrosanct. They've all got, you know, soft spots, and we all recognise that, but you make a judgment call about how easy is it going to be to challenge, or to the patent family point, you need the picket fence where the collection of everything is such that if you're the generic or the competitor, you've got to beat that one, and then you've got to beat that one, and, and you just kind of wear people down because of that collective uh, uh, barrier to entry that it, that it brings. Thank you. Gentleman with the beard here. Hi. Um, Heather, earlier you mentioned that um, it w um, if you're trying to sell software in an enterprise, a, there could be a situation where they'll ask you to put into escrow. How did you navigate that? Did you actually, did you agree and do that or did you just, did you manage to, to work around it? Uh, we've worked around it uh, by basically saying no. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and then there, there are some deals you end up walk, walking away from if they want sort of exclusivity or, you know, things like that. But again, you sort of have to take each situation as it comes, I think. And does it really depend on the value of the particular yeah, job? No, no, absolutely. It could depend on where, where you are as a business, uh, wh where you want to get to. Um, if you know that the market is you know, a, a lot bigger than just that one deal. Um, I, I think as you develop as a company, it's all about what you say no to as much as what you say yes to. 
And I, I think early on, it's really easy doing software to essentially start becoming a you know d development house for anybody to, to do anything. Yeah. Whereas as you mature as a company, you can say, actually, no, this is what we're doing. This is what we're going to focus on. This is where our R&D efforts go. And th this is the market that, that we're addressing. And, and prior to the IP, sorry, prior to the API that you developed, did you ever have the requirement to de deploy the software internally on these company servers? No, we've been SaaS from from day one. Um, so the gear to that. So, was, but yeah, back in 1998, the hardest part of the sales pitch was convincing would-be customers that the cloud was the way forward, um, as opposed to on-prem. But 100% of all of our deployments are private cloud. Is that the same with yourself, John? So with Muscat, we had uh, compiled code, and I would OEM it. So I'd ship code to customers, and they would embed it inside their own software. And one particular partner, A, approached us. I was very surprised. They said, can we buy you? I'm like, well, we're not thinking about that. Um, so we did an OEM deal. And you know, I didn't lose any sleep over it. I did escrow, because I felt that you know, if a four-person company like us fails, they're investing in actually taking this product capability out to market. They actually got acquired uh, before we got acquired, so it was no deal, uh, no, no problem. In the, in the world of Grape Shot, um, my first customer, and this is a neat way to actually do startups, um, I approached someone I knew and I said, look, you know, can I sell you $10,000 worth of software from Grape Shot? It's like, well, John, I can't, I can't actually do that right now. Um, and then a few weeks later, they got acquired by VeriSign, which is a large software company. So he said, now I can do business with you. I couldn't do any business because I just didn't want this extra due diligence of a new customer. So he said, I think you can help us here. I said, but I can't do that. He said, no, I'll give you like $100,000 I need to spend before the end of December. So why don't you promise to deliver and if you don't deliver, you can give me half the money back. So that's the way we got going. But the, the <laughs> so I got $100,000 straight out. And obviously, I had to create the new product that the customer needed in the next six months. But they did want escrow. Um, uh, I didn't actually really ship it. But I, you know, I, had, I was in beholden contractually to give them access to certain source code. And you know, I built well over, I don't know, probably a million or two million dollars worth of revenue off this first customer. And they were still a customer 13 years later when Oracle came to buy us. Now, that was a headache for due diligence <laughs> because they're going, mm, what's... So we almost wanted to kill this contract uh, ahead of the transaction just to reduce the due diligence spotlight on what was a reasonably old... Uh, it was actually the old Muscat contract, you know, OEM style, and it was the wrong contract. I shouldn't have signed that. I was just basically copying and pasting from something in the mid-90s. Um, so back to my earlier comment, you know, my, I got the black and white contract right. I was signing deals, you know, black and white legals, but I chose the wrong legal template, perhaps. Do you think if you had have put the source code into escrow, that, that would have been an issue when you when you tried to sell the business letter? That, that's precisely the point. Yes, okay. it, it creates uh, unintended consequences. You've got beat straight behind you, the gentleman. I feel like Fiona Bruce sitting here. <laughs> Hi, um, so we have, we're an early stage startup um, and um, we're trying to um, solve a real world clinical problem using software. Um, so building on what Heather said before about patenting the ability to solve the problem, if it's software, would, would that be a good idea? But given we're solving a UK based problem first, 
and you can't patent software in the UK, how do you get around that whole problem? Like, I'm, I'm trying to understand more about the patent landscape, I suppose. Mm. Um, I, I would say don't don't necessarily see see it as a problem. Um, that it is is it is okay to to have your your vision, your idea, your team, and execute on it. Um, whether or not you have a patent for it is it doesn't impact that 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 particular activity. So I would focus on the execution. Um, if if you do want to look at perhaps patent in the U.S., if if you, if you think that that's going to be an issue, fine. That's something that you could pursue. Um, but but. I, my advice would be don't worry about it. If you, if you have the, the, the software and ideas to how it's going to be applied, do it. Just go behind you again to the gentleman. So um, the title is Creating Value While Protecting IP. And creating value is uh, a key element of strategy. It increases the willingness to pay of the customers. While the second part, Protecting IP, um, looks more like a necessity, something you have to do. Um, I would like to ask you to what extent do you consider protecting IP to be, to be an element of strategy? And also, if a CEO would spend significant amount of time on these issues, or it would be the head of the R&D department who would uh, actually uh, look at this? John, do you want to pick that up? I think, you know, IP, if you can show you've got either technology no one else can copy, which is at the non-patent end, to I've got patents here, um, it increases the value essentially on the balance sheet, you know, or the value that someone's going to acquire your company at. But remember, when you're building companies, you might be thinking one day it will exit, but who knows whether it's going to exit at $100 million, $300 million, a $1 billion. Um, it's kind of small change in terms of the percentages, because you could grow for another year and just get even bigger. So at the end of the day, why are you doing the patents? And I think an IP strategy is about making sure people don't just come and copy you or erode a defensible position. So in life sciences, with your, all your hypothetical theory and no judgment about who's executing well in, when you get out the starting gates, you're using intellectual property as a differentiator for value. In other companies, it's the execution capability that is a much bigger differentiator. You have customers, they're in your CRM, your you know, customer relationship management system. You're leveraging the contact. You're building that value, just like you know, Sean's got you know, 8,000 people in China touching all those GPs. That equivalent, that's actually valuable. That sales force is value. Um, I would argue that the IP and where this discussion today has gone is make sure you've got the room to operate. You know, if you're building something and someone else has actually filed a patent close to what you're doing, and although it's your invention, they might come and say you're contravening their patent. So the biggest danger of patents is not you, is not about you having not having one. It's actually about other people having ones that will impact the way you can actually operate. And so your patent inquiry should establish your freedom to operate and potentially. Where are there areas that you could build paper value in patents? But back to the earlier question, make sure you've got a really strong ROI argument. And in my view, you know, get more than one patent as starting to be building a family. Otherwise, why do it? Focus on execution. That's, another, that's a better way to grow value and win. And Heather, as CEO, how much time do you spend worrying about um, IP? 
I, I, IP or patent, so I'd say they're two they're diff different things. It's sort of the, the tangible and intangible asset question that I think is also in the, the summary of what we're talking about. It's something that I'm aware of. Um, our R&D team is absolutely uh, aware of it, uh, more, more to your point. So what, what else is out there? Is what we're spending time and energy doing on research and development something that somebody else has already done? Is, is it unique? Um, but, but wearing my CEO hat, I, from a strategic point of view, I'm looking at making sure that whatever we're building is, is actually continuing that narrative I was talking about and playing into a very rapidly changing addressable market. And, and it's more keeping a pace with that than me sitting in the corner worrying about filing patents, honestly. But as a CEO, you think about IP all the time. Yeah. And that's the yep. contracts with the contractors, the contracts with staff. It's everything to do with I, exactly. Who owns but again, the asset. IP is not just patents, and I, and I think that that's something that needs to be appreciated. Yeah. 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 So, Big Pharma, uh, Pascal Sorio, the AstraZeneca CEO, in the context of transactions, <laughs> spends a huge amount of time thinking about and being briefed on the strength of the IP. And of course, everybody's kind of suing each other. So the, uh, Amgen and Sanofi Regeneron are fighting over PCS K9s at the moment, the uh, LDL, um, and you know, huge amounts of money going into that litigation around uh, whose IP trumps whose. So it's a big, big uh, topic in the so-called C-suite for sure. Yeah. Sir? I'll move things away from uh, from the patent. Um, so in each of your businesses, when did you really see that the creation of value took off? And at that point, did you change any way that you managed the IP, like the size of the teams or who had information, these sort of things? When the value took off. Um, for us, it's, it's actually getting first paying customers. You, you can have a bunch of you know, research people in a room writing software all day long, but, but unless it, it's something that you can market and demand a price for, um, it, it's not gonna have a, a lot of value for, from that respect. So, so it was onboarding those first paying customers and actually seeing, um, I guess, how the value um, was being created for them. Um, you know, we, we, we have a whole team now called customer success, and their, their sole purpose is making sure that we're delivering their version of success through our software. And that's how the value is actually created. Um, it, it allows you to, to create a market and put a price on, on something. It's, it's the ROI. Um, it, it's actually having a value proposition as opposed to here's my piece of software. And I, I think building a company, particularly taking something to market, that was a huge turning point within Transversal in terms of this isn't a bit of software that we're gonna sell you and look how neat it is. And the features, you know, here's, here's the features. It's what's the value proposition that we're actually bringing to you w within your particular business. Um, and the, once you make sort of that recognition, um, it, it doesn't necessarily change where you're focusing in terms of the IP, it's still your intellectual property, but it's the application of that, it, again, it's how you're executing it. Um, it. It's bringing value to the end user as opposed to placing all the value on a bit of code. For me, um the big, the big pivots in your business are actually what customers tell you. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Grapeshot, we worked a lot with publishers, so the Mail, the Economist, the Telegraph, and all their ads were using live Grapeshot decisions to impact where they served ads. And there was someone you know, who I tried to sell at to AOL at the time, and he moved, and he then went to a big agency group. And so he came out and said, 
why are you serving the sellers of ads? Why don't you serve the buyers of ads? And um, I would go down to London every week and just say, here's my mock-up of the UI. So it wasn't the technology, it was how the UI or my application fitted into his workflow with his ideas. So we kind of co-created a new vision of how this technology could be used. And he ended up being in the market leader in the sector, and then it went across all their countries. Um, and then many years later, we actually integrated into AOL. I was probably earning I don't know, $600,000 a month just out of some of these relationships. But this one guy, Tim, came up with that pivot idea. So it's back to the point, solving a problem that someone genuinely has, and then have, seeing it's the right channel, distribution channel, to really go for scale. So I ended up selling to, well, thousands, well, hundreds of trading agencies serving about 7,000 brands. But I'd go onto a single platform, one of them's called Trade Desk, and we'd earn $1.5 million a month revenue from one partner. Because the partner was actually reaching the end customer. So I didn't have to go and reach the end customer myself. So the trick is either the right business model, the group to market, coupled with listening to certain customers who actually are the spark of innovation, mm -hmm. not your technologists. Because you can create any great technology. You need a technology that solves a real problem that people perceive as value. So listen to customers out there. And I, in startup sort of uh, companies, I always say, for every day you're back at base, spend two out talking to people. Listen, <coughs> learn. Don't, don't, don't sit in your workshop thinking technology, because you're not going to solve people's problems that way. Hello. Um, I'm curious about, um, John, you mentioned several times the importance of freedom to operate and having clarity over whose you know, turf you might be infringing on. Now, doing a freedom to operate search is ridiculously expensive. I mean, we're talking maybe £80,000 and then you're not even sure if, you know, you. there's always the unknown known, the bit that you may not have discovered during your freedom to operate search. Um, do you have any suggestions, any tips or anything for entrepreneurs? Well, I, I've used uh, two groups uh, in relation to Grapeshot, actually. Two teams. One of them was an ex-MBA student here, you know, sitting in this type of conference room. And, you know, he ran a really good service. I, it didn't cost me £80,000. Um, it probably costs uh, three or four uh, thousand. I get a report and then we work out where to direct our line of inquiry. So under £10,000. And then, you know, if you go to more sort of patent lawyers themselves, they'll give you different types of advice. So I think you've got to think, some people are very digitally aware um, and can cover a lot of ground very quickly using some quite well-known patent tools. And others are basically in business to charge an hourly rate that's expensive. So I'd, ch I'd, I'd choose your supplier wisely. And how do you think about equity for advisors generally? Is that something you just stay away from? You would equity is such a valuable currency. Why give it away lightly? But people do. I know, but it's folly. Mm -hmm. You, uh, I mean, I, I employed a contractor at Sada Grape Shop because I couldn't afford to give him a proper wage. So I said, will you take a bet uh, with me? So instead of paying you £300 a, week, a day, I'll pay you £100. But I will, and I won't own the IP of the code you write until I pay you in full. And I'll give you a 33% uh, 
uh, interest rate. So I was accelerated to base. I was incentivized <laughs> to pay him the other, you know, 220 or whatever it was, or I, I can't remember if it was 80 or 100. But the point is, he took a bet on me, and I basically had to work hard to then get all the money mm -hmm. to pay him out and some more, quite a lot more. Um, and I gave him the IP until I did that. So that really galvanized me. But then I had a, a kind of a startup entrepreneur with me mm -hmm. who was only costing me um, 80 or 100 pounds a day. You've talked a lot about the trade secret route. Um, I was hoping for some maybe war stories as to either when something was no longer a trade secret uh, through something maybe that went wrong or even where you did have a confidentiality agreement in place but this got broken um, or maybe a reason why that wasn't a problem by the time you got to that stage. Uh, you had a first mover advantage at that point or, or some stories about that. Thank um, for maybe maybe we're just uh, lucky. Other than the example that I that I gave earlier, um, to my knowledge, uh, <laughs> that, that there hasn't been anybody that's either come in and, and infringed on, on any trade secret. And I think because a lot of it is in how we're actually applying the the technology. It's not just the search algorithm. Um, it, it's what we're doing through. The teams of people we have through consulting um, in terms of the ways that we're actually applying what it is that we we do. So, so I guess I, I don't have any exciting stories to tell in that particular field, other other than the one I talked about, where uh, we we were declined the business, but uh, a few a few weeks later there was an exact copy of the interface. It, it wasn't our IP. It wasn't a copy of the search technology, but it looked and behaved. Uh, almost identical to the solution that we built, but that's because it's a web, was a web page. I, I mean, it, that 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 in of itself is not that difficult to copy. So a very quick war story, if, if you'll indulge me. Yeah. We were doing due diligence, buying a product where the company was saying that, that the IP wasn't great, but actually it was the secret source. It was the know-how about how they made this particular oncology product. So the due diligence team set off to you know upstate New York, and there were three or four of them. And they were collected to go to the facility and they were sort of blindfolded, hoods over the head, put in the back of the van, driven around, disorientated and then taken to the facility. And then the three of them were told that this was such a secret source that only one of you can go in. You know, we only want one person with a blood written uh, CDA. So guess what? The due diligence team went on strike and the guy said, we're just, I'm just not going to go in on my own. We either do this properly or we don't do the deal at all. And we were all in some swanky uh, lawyer's office in, in New York and got the message that there's a bit of a problem with the deal because the due diligence team aren't prepared to cooperate with the, uh, with, 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 with the seller. Uh, probably a week later, I think three of them did go in and the deal didn't go forward, but not necessarily because of the, uh, the secret source. But you know, reliance on, I think it was a bit of a, a paint tin that was connected to something else that clearly worked wonderfully, uh, but you know, reliance on that kind of approach, you know, doesn't work with big, um, uh, big pharma companies. Breaking bad. Breaking bad. <laughs> I, well, I, I have a story. I mean, the very first meeting that I ever did for Grape Shot um, was to Google. Um, and basically, the head of open source reached out to Martin 
for permission to use his uh, open source code. And in typical flavor, Martin would always tell me like two weeks later, oh, there's this guy from Google made contact. I said, well, why don't we show them what we're doing? So uh, the meeting was uh, on a conference and it was very hard to get broadband. We had offices in King's Parade, but we couldn't get broadband to King's Parade. So we had to go home and use our sort of virgin sort of internet connection. And um, we demonstrated our technology and they're very keen. And they literally said, um, we'd like to explore acquiring you. So that was pretty good for a first meeting. Uh, and I did subsequently meet someone who was on that internal team who genuinely said, you know, I was part of the team reviewing the stuff and we were very serious. Um, but obviously, because of my history, I wanted to kind of do something better than just sell tech. I wanted to create a company. Um, so we were using a family of algorithms that researched here at Cambridge and Q Computer Lab. They're called BM25. Uh, Microsoft Labs took uh, one of Martin's co-academics sort of and he headed up search at Microsoft. And he ended up um, basically changing Bing. And Steve Bulmer actually said that Stephen had literally, in about 100 lines of code, completely radicalized the, the Microsoft search. And I was in email contact with Steve Bulmer, who's the CEO of Microsoft at the time, very aware that they were really working the BM25. And we had the BM25. And then when it came to our acquisition recently, clearly the lens was, what's special when you've got the BM25? The Microsoft's got it, it's open source. So it's back to Heather's point. You have to be really clear that whilst the algorithm is public, it's the way you actually execute it, the way you engineer it, that is the magic source. So I think we're getting near the end. Maybe one more. Is there one more question, sir? Uh, just want to follow up the trade secret. We're not a company on the IP uh, pattern. You can outlicense to general asset. But how about trade secret? Can you actually outlicensing or in licensing a trade secret to general asset? We did a lot of work in China, and we purposefully kept a lot of our software as a service running on servers that we could genuinely control. But because of the great firewall inside China, we ended up having to deliver our data services in certain parts of China. So we had to take a very considered decision. What elements were we really keeping back, and which ones were we there to deliver to the local market? So we, we, we ran you know, servers inside um, in, in uh, Beijing and in Shanghai, and we had about 20 sort of corporate customers. Um, but you have to be very careful. And so inherently, that CEO thinking about IP in the general sense has always got to be cautious about um, holding on to the, you know, the, magic, the magic bits. OK, should we leave it there? So in a very typical um, panel facilitation manner, from you both, kind of top tip takeaway for value creation and protecting IP. What's your sort of take-home message? Oh, I don't know if we'll both end up saying the same thing. But but the the value is in the execution. Um, I, you know, the, the the patents only only one one part of it. It's what you actually do with, with the idea that that is going to create the most value. I think startups often are in a hurry and with a flurry. And I think what you need to do is make sure you document everything. The person you're employing, the contractor, the supplier, the person who designed your very first logo. Um, everything to do with the website, the build, and everything. 
uh, be really aware of the value of IP in terms of its assignment, who creates it, and your rights to exploit it. And then with patents, correspond your IP against what other people have actually packaged in patents and make sure you're not offending other people's existing patents. And then there were seven guys and girls hanging around who became Google, which is probably the inspiration from the evening. So, so just to say thank you for everybody for attending and in good numbers. But as I said at the beginning, um, it's been fantastic to have had Heather and John with us to, sell, to share their experiences so candidly and openly and practically, uh, dare I say, so if we can... Yeah, thank you.